Live from Red Bull Studios, New York. You're now tuning into the Top Rank Podcast. This is Marcel. And this is Isabel. And we're your hosts and also editors at Top Rank Magazine. So for any new listeners out there, our podcast is an offshoot of Top Rank Magazine, which is a publication based in Brooklyn that profiles women of different backgrounds who are driving, shaping, and challenging the world around them. We think of our podcast as a process-oriented research platform grounded in conversation. And working in collaboration with our guests and our listeners, we hope to create a flexible knowledge production outlet that is exploratory rather than prescriptive or conclusive. Today, we're so excited to welcome Arshia Karani, founder and CEO of Sukoon Activewear. Hi, Arshia. Hi, it's so nice to be here with you guys today. We're so excited to have you here today. So, Arshia, would you be able to just introduce yourself and maybe a little bit of background about what you do and why we're here today? I'm super excited to be launching Sukoon. Um, we design inclusive activewear for women um, to empower themselves in the context of their faith and their cultures. Um, the, the company really came about from my own experience of being Muslim American, um, of wearing hijab, and of needing um, activewear and in particularly needing activewear hijabs um, while I was working out. So I'm so excited to, to talk with you guys today about my story and about our brand and uh, more about what you guys do. That sounds great. I mean, you've already started to touch on some of our initial intro questions. So maybe you could first talk to us a little about, well, three things essentially. What sort of like, what is the mission of the brand as you already touched upon and what is the product, but also for anyone who might not be familiar, just what is a hijab? Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, I, I'm here with you guys today because uh, both personally and as a brand, um, we believe that every woman around the world deserves to be able to work out. Um, the problem is that we live in a society that often often overlooks the cultural and spiritual preferences of entire communities of women and the way that their clothing cho choices um, impact their their workouts um, and what they buy in order to find what they need to work out in. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I wear hijab and um, hijab is very complicated, mostly because it is an Arabic word that actually can't be directly translated to English. Um, and I think that's where, you know, potentially um, there's a lot of confusion and there's also just a lot of different ways to observe it. Um, there's a lot of different ways to be respectful of it. And, you know, I stand here today as, you know, an American Muslim who truly believes that uh, hijab is a choice um, and that it's, it's a way... Um, it's a way for women who are Muslim to, um, you know, to, to practice our faith uh, in a way that means something to us. Um, to me, I find it very, very empowering. Um, and, you know, I, I also stand here, like, I, I'm sitting here with you guys, and I think so much about this now where, like, I started wearing hijab about eight and a half years ago. And, you know, I've definitely had my ups and downs with it, but... Um, you know, I think about it and like, it's brought me here. It's brought me to Sukoon and I, you know, I don't know, I get to be 
on this journey every single day where I'm meeting amazing people. I'm sitting down with incredible women like yourselves. I'm sharing stories. I'm helping and and trying to develop a platform um, that empowers not just women who wear hijab, but women of any kind of, um, any background of any culture, of any body type um, who feels like she is overlooked in the marketplace. Um, You know, and I, I think about it a lot from the macro level of like, that's really what religion and faith is is meant to do. It's meant to bring communities together. It's meant to make, to make people better. Um, and so, I don't know. I mean, I think that's really, that's been my experience of wearing the hijab and, and, and um, building, building our brand. What has your, been your experience um, like building this brand? I mean, you're an entrepreneur full-time. Could you talk a bit more about um, what that day-to-day life entails? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, I mean, I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> I, um, I've been working on Sukoon, uh, the product idea for about two and a half years. Um, I, uh, I've, I love running. It's something I've very much connected with in my adult life. Um, you know, I always used to work, I always used to do team sports when I was a kid. And, um, as I got older, I really needed a way to keep physically active. And so I started running and, and started competing in races, um, which is how, you know, really how the, the frustration of not having an activewear hijab that I liked that, was high performance that wicked away sweat. Um, but that was also in line with my personal aesthetic. Um, that's really how the idea was born. You know, I was running uh, my first half marathon and I used to wear a bandana when I was working out and my bandana literally fell off like in the sixth or seventh mile. And it was mortifying, you know, and I, I think, you know, for, for those who are really unfamiliar with hijab, it is like very much the equivalent of, you know, your shirt falling off. It's, it's very much like a Janet Jackson moment. Um, <laughs> and I experienced that, you know, I was like, Oh my gosh, this sucks. Like, this is really awkward. This is really embarrassing. This is really frustrating. Um, and you know, I think like it took me, it took me like for, at first it was really just a side project. Um, I used to work on it, you know, before work, I used to work on it during my lunch break after work. And, um, I decided that I really wanted to test this idea and get some data around the demographic, around, um, the communities, the different challenges that women face in finding the right activewear. Um, so I launched a Kickstarter campaign in, um, 2016 and it went, so much better than I could have imagined. I mean, it was really, really hard, but, um, it really gave us the traction that we needed to, to build our business. You know, we, um, we discovered a a strong customer base of almost 400 people. We raised almost three times our funding goal. Um, and you know, that really pushed me to, uh, make this my full-time career. And I think the beauty of being an entrepreneur is that, every day is so different. I mean, you know, we're sitting here, it's a Friday night and we're eating falafel and and talking entrepreneurship and (laughs) product. Um, and that's the beauty of it. Um, and and that's also the hard part of it, right? You're constantly, uh, switching gears, you know, and you know, one day I'm, you know, one day all I'm doing is like paying invoices and, and, you know, like adjusting my P and L. And then the next day I'm literally like, you know, um, playing with fabric swatches and trying to come up with our next design. So it's really, really different. It's really dynamic. Um, but I think that's why people work for themselves. You know, it's, it's really fun and you get to meet really great people along the way who are super passionate and, 
Um, I think one of my biggest learnings is like there are careers and specialties and fields of expertise that I never even knew existed. And I now get to not only meet those people, learn from those people, um, but hire those people, you know, bring those people onto my team to help um, me build out my dream. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about these recent forays by global brands like Dolce Gabbana and Nike <laughs> that have kind of entered into this realm of if of modest fashion, have been also kind of marketing and branding inclusion and equality in ways that you know I think are kind of interesting to parse um, why that is and why now. Um, so there is there does seem to be this like recognition like of these big global brands, um, but perhaps also a kind of commodification of the Islamic consumer and this kind of developing um, an idea of who this person is, right? This consumer is. So we're we're wondering what your thoughts are about these more recent efforts to address Muslims as consumers and in the West in particular, like in the United States, um, for starters. Um, and what do you think? is at stake with um, this kind of corporate inclusion and recognition, um, especially in our current political climate? That's a loaded question. <laughs> I know. We try to, you know, we, these, are, these are things we talk about. <laughs> um, no, I, I love it. It's, you know, it's, it's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean... I have, I think, a lot of different responses on many different levels, right? As a as a Muslim woman, as a minority woman, I'm so thrilled to be thought about by a large brand. Um, you know, as I, I grew up Muslim, I've always really been very conscious about what I'm wearing, what I'm buying. Um, and since I've been wearing hijab, you know, over the past decade, it's very much like something that I have to think about and be really strategic about. It's very hard for me to go out and shop in the month of July. It's, it's very rare that I can find anything that I can actually wear. Um, I do the majority of my shopping in, you know, spring and fall as a result of that. Um, so what I can say from that is that I'm really excited to be thought about by large brands and I actually applaud them for finally um, paying attention to us as a demographic. Um, all that being said, it's you know, we are in a way a nuanced consumer, right? Like I have so many different identities, right? I'm Muslim, I'm American, I'm born and brought up here. Um, I'm a woman, I'm a woman with a specific type of body shape. I'm a woman with a specific kind of hair texture. Um, all of these things very much impact the way that I shop, what I buy, what I believe is flattering on me. And it's really hard for me to believe that these huge brands really understand me. Um, if you take some of these brands, for example, again, I applaud them for attempting to connect with me as a customer, but for example, um, Mango, uh, over the past couple of years has done modest wear collections, um, that are focused on, uh, the month of Ramadan, which is the month of fasting. Um, at the end of that month, there comes a, a big holiday called Eid and Mango has done, I think at this point at least two different collections um, focused on the Muslim female consumer uh, pinpointed during this time. And there are major flaws with these collections. I mean, they use sheer fabrics. They use really tight materials. They have like long sleeve dresses, but they have like cutouts in the arms. Um, what? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like, have you talked to a Muslim woman who wears a job? Like, I don't know if you have. And it's not, I don't mean to, you know, I don't mean to like, 
be overly critical, but really like if the target consumer is me, then like talk to me, ask me what I'm wearing, look at me, like follow me around for a week or two weeks or a year and see what I'm going to wear. And you'll see that I'm never wearing something with cutouts in the arms. Right. So, um, Again, I, I think it's a great effort. I'm just not sure if these big brands can really execute it. Um, and I think that's what Sukoon brings to the table um, in a lot of different ways, right? Like this is a huge market on the global scale. I mean, there's just data coming out uh, around the Muslim uh, consumption patterns around, um, you know, our buying power and the Muslim, uh, the, the, the buying power of like modest in, in the modest fashion world is estimated to be $243 billion on a global level, which is massive. Right. And, uh, that is, that is predicted to grow to 368 billion by 2021. I mean, these statistics are like monstrous. And, um, I think honestly, like, you know, taking, taking the conversation over to Nike, like, when Nike, so we did our Kickstarter summer of 2016. Um, Nike put out their press release saying that they're going to drop the Nike Pro Hijab uh, in the first quarter of 2017. And I like flipped out. <laughs> I was like, what is happening? Like, this is mine. Like, this. And, and it's not even just that it's mine. I, I never claim that I am the inventor of the sports hijab. I mean, there are other small brands out there. Um, they are. The part of the reason that I, I started Sukoon is because a lot of those brands are based out of the United States. They're based, you know, in Europe or in the Middle East. And so there's huge shipping costs and times and you can't really return them. You don't really know what you're buying. Um, I didn't feel like it was an accessible product for me as a New York based consumer, as a US based consumer. Um but then here, here Nike comes, right? And they're like, we're, you know, we're revolutionizing like the athletic world with the Nike Pro Hijab. And yet their imagery again is like, they're wearing skin tight clothing um, that, you know, I, I don't know, like that, that's part of the problem that we're solving. We also do, um, we also, right now we offer two different kinds of athletic hijabs. We offer two different kinds of tops, um, that are, you know, our, our shirts are A-line, they're longer in length, they're tunic level, um, they're looser fits. We specifically don't use spandex for that reason. Um, and the thing is that, you know, we understand the customer because like I am the customer, like I am the first and last wearer of every single product before it goes to a sample room. And, you know, I, I'm actually like, you know, in, in a way I'm kind of flattered. Like it's amazing that as an entrepreneur, I feel extremely validated that this is the right time to be entering this market. You know, like hijab is something that is so, it's like so, so, so close to my heart. Like I do it every single day and I love, I've had such an incredible experience wearing it. And it's just really hard for me to think that like a huge brand can ever like, make that experience better for me. Like I think the yeah. person who can, the brand that can make that experience better for me is somebody else who wears the job. Um, yeah. And, and I, yeah. yeah. And I, and I think like, again, taking it outside of that, like for us, like, you know, I think a lot about how other women from other communities, 
um, have similar experiences to us. Like there's Jewish women, there's, there's Christian women, um, who have very similar experiences and, you know, maybe also don't necessarily have a voice in this market. And I think that's really where I see Sukun going. That's the vision, right? Is to empower women from all different cultures, all different faiths, um, to take care of themselves and, you know, to compete and to, to strengthen, to do whatever, whatever it makes them, um, happy and whatever, like keeps them well. So obviously critical to developing a brand is also developing an image of a target consumer. And who for you is a Sukun consumer and how do you navigate developing an image of a target market that is precise, but also, as you mentioned, recognizes the complexities and the contingencies of Muslim identities? Um, yeah. So, so when I first started working on this product idea, um, I really just thought about myself. I thought about my needs and, and what was most frustrating for me, um, which was, uh, the fact that I didn't have anything that I could use to cover my hair, um, that, that still enhanced my workouts. Um, and that allowed me to do the things that I love. Um, so when I started kind of building out the product and stuff, I, you know, I, I came up with a couple of different ideas, a couple of really rough prototypes. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to learn about other people's experience. And so what I did is I put together like a Google survey, super easy. It was like 10 questions and I sent it out to like 50 friends. And within a week I got 300 responses and this survey ended up going out like nationally across listservs, um, like across professional listservs and social listservs, like within the Muslim community. Um, and it was very cool. I mean, I thought, I wish I had asked a lot more questions in that survey, but it, that was really when it pinged me as like a business idea. And that's, I think, honestly, before Kickstarter, that was like the most that I learned in a really quick snapshot. Um, and so I had realized that like my, my biggest pain point was hijab, but there were so many women who filled out that survey who didn't wear hijab and who also weren't even Muslim. Um, and they talked about how, you know, they're still looking, they're looking for clothing that is not sheer, is not skin tight, has more coverage, has looser and like wider silhouettes, has more size options. Um, and I was like, oh wow, like this, that's when it became like a business because like it was like, there's so many different needs and it's all within the same customer, um, the same, the same potential customer. Um, and so we moved forward with that and, you know, then started building up towards our Kickstarter campaign. Um, you know, going back to like a, a targeted consumer, you know, for me, like it was always just like the Muslim woman. Um, I think what our Kickstarter really taught us is that there are several other demographics that can benefit from our product. Um, but I think it, it, as a brand, it makes most sense to, to focus on one particular customer and then, and then branch out. Um, and so for us, that customer is the Muslim woman, you know, the gen, the, the gen Y millennial, millennial customer, um, you know, I've done so many interviews with just like my friends, like, you know, friends of friends, like, you know, thought a lot about like where I get my, my news, my media, like where, where I'm learning about like the places that I like to shop, what kind of imagery, um, you know, I'm, I pay attention to, and then also getting all of that data from the people around me, um, and using that to, to understand our customer. Um, you know, again, taking it back to like these, these bigger brands, like their target demographics are much broader. And I think um, the, the main difference is that like 
we are we know that our customer is a hyphenated customer. You know, we know that the women that we're serving have multiple identities, whatever those identities might be. And we are creating products that take all of those identities um, and and build them into our product base. Um, so that that's, you know, that that's really what I would say is like our how we're going about building our building our core. Uh, I was going to say, that's a, um, that's a really great answer because I feel like the way that I think about identity and branding and Marcel actually studies this and is an expert in this topic, so maybe you can speak more to it, um, is that often branding and identity are about streamlining, simplifying, and distilling the, the idea of what somebody is into its kind of like most basic f- and often like quasi-fantastical components. So the idea of like an intersectional customer seems like a very necessary and also like intellectually infused way of thinking about this. Right. Because it's also, I mean, it's what makes us human, right? Are all our layers. But I feel like brands, when you create a consumer kind of archetype, is almost like you're trying to mitigate risk. You're trying to learn your consumer so that you know them well enough to give them things that they want, right? Mm-hmm. Of course. So I feel like sometimes it's like this back and forth between understanding that nuance, but also have to kind of um, create an idea of a target, right? How do yeah. you, how do you kind of, you know, nuance is hard to kind of put into a market category, marketing category yeah. almost, but it's like, it seems like what your, what your product is doing is kind of, um, what's the word taking, taking that nuance into account. Like mm-hmm. when you, when you talk about like the Muslim, um, woman, what does that mean for your, for your brand? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I guess again, sort of realizing that, of course, the diversity in experiences in the United States and across the across the world. How do you reconcile with that? Yeah, I mean, what I like to think is that we let our customers tell us. Like, I don't see it as my responsibility or the responsibility of Sukun to define inclusiveness. Um, our job is our our role in your life as the customer and in like the world of business is to design for you. Um, you know, and so for example, we offer, um, the two different hijab styles that we offer. We offer a turban style hijab and we offer what what is kind of more of a classic style, what people are used to seeing. Um, and there's so many people who come up to us, like, you know, (laughs) who are like, like who look at our turban style hijab and are like, do people really buy that? Is that really a hijab? And I'm Mm -hmm. like, first of all, Yes. Second of all, <laughs> yes. Third of all, like it's like why your your what your question is like dripping with judginess. Right. And it's not your job, and it's not my job. You know, people people observe faith in different ways, and it's our job to empower them to do that. Um, you know, in the same way, like we offer a short sleeve t shirt and a long sleeve t shirt. Like, not everybody wears a job. Not. Not everybody is even concerned about like observing specific tenets of modesty. Maybe they just want a looser top, right? Maybe they just want a top that's longer um, that like can cover their butt when they're wearing leggings, right? And I think um, like that's what kind of makes us unique is that 
we really want to empower our customer through giving them the tools that they need to feel comfortable um, and to achieve their ultimate workout, whatever that might be. Um, You know, when I spoke about that survey, that initial survey that we did, 40% of women that we surveyed reported that they had skipped a workout because they didn't know what to wear. And we don't think about as a society the impact that the clothing that is available to us has on our experiences and has like on our motivation levels. Um, And this is something I think about all the time now is that access to clothing is very much equated, like equal to access to experiences. Like if you don't have the right, like think about for somebody who doesn't face this problem, it's like going for a run with running shoes with that don't have shoelaces. Mm -hmm. Like you can't do it because you don't have the tool you need to run. And that is literally what it feels like to not have the right hijab, to not have a top that you can wear. Like I used to wear, you know, I I hear from all of these women and when I started hearing them being like, we don't even have, you know, it's hard to find like a long sleeved running top to wear during the summer. And I was like, I actually faced this problem too. It's just that for me, my primary focus was always on my hijab. But like, even for me, there are so many other like issues that I face. It's just that, as a customer who lives in a society, you know, it, who lives in the U.S. and and my clothing preferences are so like ignored, I have to prioritize like what is most important to me, and every customer has to do that for herself, right? And it's like we, you know, there's so much talk about like you know this week is a great week to be having this conversation, right? And like with the whole like Me Too movement, right? And there's so many discussions. I've had so many discussions this week with my guy friends about. Um, you know, emotional labor and like picking out what to wear should not involve so much emotional labor. And yet for anybody and everybody with a hyphenated identity, it does. Like if your body type doesn't fit into what Lululemon or what Nike or what Under Armour thinks that your body type should be, like you don't have access to, to taking care of yourself. Um, and that's the, that's, that's us. That's who we are. And so, you know, I, I get asked a lot, like, you know, I used to work in like community development and people ask me like, what makes you qualified to do this? Like what makes you qualified to run this business? And I'm like, I'm ready. I'm, I'm qualified because I'm doing it, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm just learning how to do it. And I've been the afterthought in this market. And like, that's kind of like the controlling idea of our brand is you are not an afterthought. Um, we go into every design with a blank canvas and we, we talk to real women in the process. We we put every single product on real women all around us. Um, and all of that is hopefully reflected into our design. So you really have this like personal touch with even like the, that consumer research study that you did. It seems to glean like so many amazing insights that I'm sure are probably already peaking the interest or have of these like corporate entities. I wonder since having that survey out, like, have other big companies approached your idea? I mean, I could only imagine that press release coming out and freaking out. Like, yeah. So, so what's happened? What what has happened since then? This is an amazing idea. Successful Kickstarter campaign. Eyeballs on you. Like, are people knocking on your door? Nike can outproduce us. They can outmarket us. Um, and that's kind of the test. Uh, but I also see it as... Mike Nike is also helping us create a category of clothing and a category of customer. Um, and the way I see it is like, if we can get through this time, like, 
you know, we live in like a, a political time in which it's really interesting to talk about what we're talking about today. Right. And is Nike and Dolce and Gabbana and these other brands, are they getting, are they like just jumping on this bandwagon because it's because of the political world that we live in today? Um, are these, are these brands, like if we were in a different political cycle, are these brands going to be catering to this, to this customer? You know, I don't know. And you know, the way I see it is like, we can work really, really hard and we can capitalize off of, off of the marketing dollars that these big brands are putting in, into the world. And what we can do is bring our story. You know, we can bring as much authenticity and credibility and as much knowledge as we have about the customer base. Um, and hopefully, you know, that leads us, that leads us to success. And, and my goal is that whether or not these other brands are bringing these products to the world, you know, in five years, in 10 years that we are, because we are designing for this customer. So, yeah. I think that's a really interesting point that I've actually heard iterated in other ways by other people who I know who've started small kind of grassroots brands and whatever it be, you know, women's clothing or streetwear is that now that we've recognized the corporate ability to, you know, carve a market to like really produce a desire, um, that then the question is, if we're going to leave it up to somebody else to do that, why not have small businesses come in and take those consumers? You know, it's like, if they're going to do that work, why should they then also create the product? And it's kind of like a strange way of reversing the power structure. And I think that will be a really interesting question in like the way that, that garments are made moving forward now that that is underway. But, um, switching gears a tiny bit about, some more logistical things about production. We noticed that you posted on Instagram, two women employees at one of your overseas factories. Um, and there was a, a caption about, you know, eth ethical labor and kind of inclusiveness and everything. And when, I guess our question is when, when you're trying to make a scalable product in a globalized garment economy, how do you strive to, you know, create a profitable manufacturing setup while also meeting all these ethical standards and like trying to keep things fair labor wise and production wise. I feel like the, one of the problems with globalization as far as production is that it creates a system in which it's very difficult to be both profitable and ethical. Like the system is built to be the opposite. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering as to how you've dealt with that. Oh yeah. You hit the nail on the head. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think a really big part of it is educating the customer. Um, you know, I went out, um, to Vietnam for the first time, uh, about uh, earlier this year. Um, and it was my first time seeing overseas factories, um, and overseas mills. And I just like, you know, their entire, a lot of like their economies, like both micro and macro economies in Asia are focused around garment manufacturing. And so everybody knows about it, right? There's like a baseline of understanding about how these things work, about the labor practices, et cetera. And, um, you know, even in Europe, that is the case in the U S that is not. And we are, uh, in the U S we are really sheltered we don't have these economies based around these, we don't have the economies based around um, these industries. And everything is coming from so far away that there's like literally no trickle down of information. Um, and literally I had to go to Vietnam to like learn this and come to this understanding and realization. Um, and so, you know, you're absolutely right in that 
it is very, you know, I, I, I don't, I wish like, I guess like the, the really hard thing that I just can never wrap my mind around is like how these practices came to be in the first place. Like it is literally modern day slavery, like in these factories. Right. And I just don't understand how it's not like it's just happening in one place. It's happening worldwide where people are not making a living wage where they're like literally, you know, the, the, the horror stories that you hear, like, or that you read about, if you care to, they're very real. And I've seen like some iterations of them where literally like people are not allowed to leave their factories. You know, they have, they, they have to produce like X amount per day. Otherwise they can't leave. Um, you know, they're stuck in, in factories that, uh, you know, have like horrible air air pollution literally circling back into the factories because the air pollution is so bad externally that they're actually not allowed to release those toxins into the air. So they're released back into the buildings. Um, and gosh, like I'm, I'm just shuddering, like thinking about it. And I am so new to this industry and I don't know the half of it. Right. So, um, you know, we are a value and mission-based company, like to our core, right? Like just think about the kinds of products that we're bringing to the world. Um, and so it makes absolutely no sense to me to jump into any kind of supply chain practices that, um, are not ethical. And it takes a lot, um, it takes a lot of asking questions and, unfortunately losing margins, as you said, um, to get there. And there, and there's many, there's many ways in which that plays out, right? Like there's ethical work practices for your laborers, um, there, but then there's also just like, there's huge environmental concerns. I mean, especially in active wear, um, we use mostly, you know, very synthetic fabrics. We use a lot of polyester and lycra based products, um, which are now, you know, which are kind of seen as like really high tech, high performance. And there are benefits to these products. I, I'm not, I'm not saying that there's not like they've become popular because they are stain resistant. You can add chemical treatments to them. You can add dyes to them to make them specific colors. Um, you know, but like as customers, we don't think about like the chemical runoffs that caught like, like that's a cost, right? There are chemical runoffs that come with dyes. Um, like polyester is something that like literally never disintegrates. Right. And you can recycle polyester in certain ways. And you know, you, you see brands now being like, Hey, I use recycled polyester to make leggings or to make, you know, to make different products. And you can do that. But at the end of the day, these are plastic based fibers. So like they are not like good for our world and they are not good for us. Right. You're, we're like, we're wearing plastic, you know, we don't think about it that way. Um, and so we, as a brand, have very, very intentionally, uh, we're trying to make a shift back into using natural fibers um, that don't require any additional uh, treatments. Um, and so the the base collection that we put out through our Kickstarter, um, the base fabric was a high-performance merino wool fiber, which is 100% natural. There are no treatments involved. Um, the the like it's, it's literally coming from like New Zealand and Australia. Um, and it's complete natural and it doesn't harm the, the animal at all. Um, and then we, we pair it with, you know, mash and recycled polyesters, as I said, and that kind of thing, um, as necessary to kind of enhance the, the performance of it. Um, but as a result of that, right, like these natural materials are actually in some ways much more expensive. And the, the major issue on a global scale is that, like our governments don't incentivize businesses to do that. So 
like the price points of these raw materials are higher and there are also like customs and duties to imp- that are higher sometimes for these natural materials. So you have to really want it as a business and you have to like be willing to find your dollars elsewhere. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's hard. I mean, the trade-off is, is never easy. It's never clear as to like what you should be sacrificing on. Um, and so, you know, for, for us, like, I, I think that we have a uni- unique opportunity to educate our customer because, we're a value-based company and we are assuming and, you know, we know in a lot of ways that our customers are value-based, right? They are, they are observe, they, they are people who observe culture. They are people who observe faith. And so we think that really we can help educate them about like what the practices are overseas. Um, and, and it's not, you know, and I, I don't think it's, it's not even overseas. I mean, like <laughs> I've sampled with like eight to 10 factories here in New York city. And the same thing happens, you know, made in America doesn't mean that like people are getting paid $20 an hour. It really, really doesn't. Um, I've seen sweatshops right here in New York city that we bypassed and didn't work with. Um, you know, um, but it's, it's like really just like shedding light. And, and I think like social media is a really incredible thing for lots of reasons, but we, you know, as a, as a brand that got our start on Kickstarter, um, you know, we really value the transparency that we can offer. Like, you know, we were posting on Instagram before we even had like real product out. So the first couple of posts on our Instagram are like, you know, even those are probably like the 20th iteration of a product, but they're still product. It was prototypes like way before the final. Right. Um, so, you know, we, as you said, like we try and show like faces to our workers because at the end of the day, you know, faces to our workers and, and like the, the behind the scenes of what's happening in the factories, because like the fact is that like not every single person can go overseas and wherever that might be and go and like walk into a factory. But what they can do is they can tune into like our Instagram story. They can tune into like our feed and see what factories look like and see that there are people literally building their clothes. And then like, we don't have to tell them that, you know, like the idea is that over time, we don't have to tell you that your $10 t-shirt costs you $10 because somebody's getting paid like 50 cents to make it. Like, then you start putting this together. Like, Hey, this is a person who spent an entire, you know, 16 hours or something like sewing my t-shirt together. Like how much should this t-shirt be worth? Um, then yeah, so so for us, like we we very much go. We like to say that we like are taking taking performance back to the basics. So I mean, navigating this kind of ethical and business quandary yeah. is probably one amongst many oh challenges that come along with um, starting your own company. I was wondering if you talk about. Um, what have been some of what we have here? What have been some of the hardest parts of starting your own business, and anything surprising along the way? But I guess also to go along with that, what have been among the most joyful and exciting things? So I guess like both sides of the coin, <laughs> hard and also, you know, yeah, wonderful. Um, I mean, as you said, just navigating, like figuring out what needs to be done, is is always really hard. Um, you know, I think. I remember the when I the first time I thought about Sakuna as a business, the first thing I did um, was I called up like two friends who had a healthcare startup, and they were the only people that I knew who had started like a company in New York City. And I called them and I was like, "Hey, like, can you guys meet with me?" And 
they were like, yeah, sure. Like, cool. Come to our office, whatever. Um, I went there and I like laid out all this research about like the modest fashion world and potential competitors and like all of like my ideas and all these like random sketches and stuff. And we sat there and they were like super patient and they just like waited. And like, I was like, so like, yeah. And they were like, (laughs) yeah, so what? Like now what? And I was like, what do you mean now? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, I thought you were going to tell me like, what to do next? And they were like, oh my God, no, like, no, that's not how it works. Like you have to figure out what to do next, you know? And it was like literally like day T minus one. And I was like, this is like really fun. This is going to be fun. But I think no one's telling me what to do, but also like, holy crap, no one's telling me what to do. Um, you know, and it, it was just like really shed the, shed the light on what, I'm getting myself into, um, into really just like navigating. I think you really, when you're starting your own business, you have to be super curious. Um, you know, I, I literally after that, I would go and just like literally ask, I went through like my whole Facebook, I went through my whole LinkedIn and I found all these people who had careers that I didn't understand or anything in consumer product, anything in fashion. And I sat down and like had coffee with them. And I think that's like, even looking back on it, I mean, that's, I'm such a people person. I love talking. I love hearing people's stories. Um, and so that like, honestly, is just one of the constant highlights of, of this whole process is meeting people and like getting to know them and, and understand them and just constantly expand my knowledge base. Um, and like what I think, you know, people do and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and, and on the flip side, I think, one of the hardest things was like just getting through the first production run. Um, there was just so much to learn and like as, as customers, as consumers, like we do not think, I, I mean, certainly I never thought about like all the raw materials that go into like a garment, um, you know, like literally like a thread, a button, a, like a tag, um, whether that tag is printed onto your garment, whether that tag is sewn into like a label onto your garment, um, the testing, the the wash testing that goes into garments before production, like all the different, like all the different materials that go into something, right? The graphics that go on to tees or whatever. Um, gosh, it was just like such a learning process. I was like, I remember at the end of it, I was putting together, like just finalizing all of our cost sheets and stuff. And I was like, this is amazing that into this like little scarf that I'm making, this little hijab that I'm making, there's like eight or nine materials going into this. Um, and it was, it was just very hard, um, like navigating that world and getting everything into the right place. Like we had, oh my gosh, one of my worst days was like, we were working with this supplier um, in Colombia for like three months to get the right mesh. And mesh is really hard because it's like, um, it's naturally like a sheer fabric, like a lot of mesh is very sheer, which doesn't work for our products. Um, and so we found this mesh and it was super lightweight and it was like double-sided and we were trying to get the dot, the color right. And they kept on getting the color wrong. And then finally they got the color right. And we were like, okay, cool. Like put it on the boat tomorrow. And they were like, or, you know, put it like, let's put the order in and then, and then put on the boat. Like it was supposed to take like 10 days to custom dye or whatever. And they were like, what are you talking about? They were like, the port's on strike. And we were like, what? Like when's the earliest we can get the fabric? And then they were like, oh no, like the, the strike is probably going to last for like 10 days. And then like, there's like a national holiday and the whole factory is going to be out for a week. 
So like the earliest you can get your fabric is like eight weeks from now or something. And I like flipped out. I just like, I cried. I was like, oh my God, like we've been trying to get this right for like three months. Like it was just so hard, you know? And, and like our whole production line was delayed because of that. We had, we literally dropped that. Like we had spent like eight or 12 weeks or something developing like the right color with this supplier. And then we had it completely right. We had done all of our sampling in this material. And then we had to drop them and just like find another one because like our factory that was sewing everything together wasn't going to hold our spot, like to sew everything together. And all the other raw materials were there except this like one mesh. And it's just like stuff like that happens all the time. <laughs> and um, yeah, so the, the, the highs and lows are, are super, are like super extreme, I would say. Um, but I think like, it's just, it's been like, it's definitely been a test and I wouldn't have done it if I knew what I was getting into. And so that's kind of, you know, like ignorance is, is really bliss sometimes. <laughs> I, I've certainly experienced that. <laughs> And you are still doing it and still excited about it. Oh my gosh, so what is wrong must, with me? <laughs> must, something must be going right. And I mean, this has been such a wonderful conversation. It's really been such a joy and really inspirational to learn that you kind of, you know, had an idea and like went about it and are creating um, a product for for women that. Um, recognizes their 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 complexities and their fullnesses and is really um giving them the tools to live active lives that's why I, I need to i need to be more active shit i haven't been to the gym and like oh i know i'm just like yeah, you're talking running. about like people being active i'm like oh god i'm sitting here like yeah you're right i'm one of those people so um yeah thank you so much again uh yeah this is our 11th episode of the top Rate podcast uh this is marcel this is Isabel, and also thank you to Sienna, our producer, and to Arshia for being here. Thank you, guys.